In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, after canceling on y'all last time, because I think I had like 37 things for one night and was about to lose my mind. Um, so, our long-awaited continuation of Latin Mass 201 uh, reflections here. And so before we, before we get into that, uh, I want to add another book to your list of, of good resources. It's The Roman Mass, uh, From Early Christian Origins to Tridentine Reform. Um, if anybody knows with certainty how to say his first name, please let me know. U-W-E, Michael Lang. I guess U-A, Michael Lang. He's a, a priest of the oratory. Um, and so this is uh, a fantastic work, uh, but it's an investment. I think it was like 140 bucks or something maybe. Um, and so whenever you buy sometimes from, because it's from Cambridge University Press, when you buy from universities, sometimes they, they know they're not going to be selling a ton of them, so they make the few that they have super expensive. Um, and so, but this one, this one I, I've not been able to, to dig into it yet, but, um, but Father Lang has uh, another phenomenal work called uh, Turning Towards the Lord on Autorientum Worship. Uh, There's a, a, solid, uh, a solid book on, on the teaching on Autorientum Worship and its apostolic origins. Uh, so he's... he's uh, a uh, fantastic liturgist. Uh, he's got a number of other kind of essays and articles and things that he's composed. Um, speaks at a number of conferences and things, but uh, but that was just recently released in the last in the last couple of months. And so I'm very excited to have that and add that to the the uh, continually increasing uh, list of fantastic resources out there for the traditional liturgy and understanding more and more our roots uh, and all of these things. And so uh, I do not have a sheet to hand out for y'all with the information tonight. Uh, I may be able to put one together uh, in the days ahead to be able to just kind of synthesize the information for you. But I will give you, um, like I said, the information, information that's present here, um, reflecting specifically today from the epistle uh, through the creed. And so that'll be... Uh, hopefully that'll be the, the course of our, of our timeline there, the Epistle of the Creed. So, uh, this, portion, this portion of the Mass, um, there's not a lot of, of clarity as far as when, uh, when were things established, because they, they basically were established from the very beginning. Uh, so it's not as if, like, oh, in the 4th century they started reading the Epistle. Like, no, like in the first century, they started reading the epistle because the Jews started reading the epistle, essentially, an Old Testament equivalent, a millennia before, uh, right? And so really the, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish standard for, for kind of the synagogue teaching and these kinds of things would be that they would go in, they would, they would have a reading from the scroll, from the law of the prophets. There would be psalms that would be sung and then, and then a reflection, right? So that's what our Lord Whenever he sits down, he reads the prophet Isaiah, and he sits down, rolls up the scroll, and gives it back to him. And he says, today is this fulfilled in your hearing. And then everyone's kind of in uproar about what's happening because he starts to interpret Isaiah in regards to himself, right? And so that was, that's a little synthesis of what, of what um, temple, temple worship um, and the synagogue, the synagogue teachings 
would have been like. And so essentially that reading, a reading from the Law of the Prophets, Psalms being sung, a sermon, uh, or some kind of reflection, kind of breaking open uh, or applying the, the psalm or the readings uh, that were read to the people present there. And so that's, uh, that's, again, why a lot of this doesn't have specific roots uh, because it is, it is so, so much from the beginning and, and well past the beginning uh, that that's, that's just simply where it comes from. The overall structure of, of this is, is kind of a, a listen, respond, listen, respond. <coughs> and so the, uh, the epistle is the listening, the, the gradual, the response, uh, so the psalm response, the gospel, the listening, and the credo, a response. Uh, and so those, it's kind of uh, all tied together there as the concluding, the concluding part of the first part of the Mass, the Mass of the Catechumens. Um, and so what, uh, what we see through this is, uh, again, starting with the, starting with the epistle, uh, so the, the reading, the first reading, uh, typically throughout the course of the year, um, outside of penitential seasons, it's from the New Testament. And so that's why most of the time you hear Lexio Sancti, uh, Epistole Sancti Apostoli, uh, Pauli, Petri, Ioanni, right? And so um, you have you might have one of the new New, new Testament epistles um, that are that are being proclaimed. The the times whenever you hear most clearly uh, or most most frequently the the Old Testament, often it is the prophets that are being that are being read, and it's during the penitential seasons, like tonight, when for the reading from Isaiah. And so oftentimes the the prophets. Uh, because especially during Lent, a lot of the prophets are, are kind of calling people to holiness. <laughs> so Lent's a great time to call the people to holiness, to call them back to the Lord, right? And so the, these calls to repentance, calls to conversion that are often found in the prophets, uh, that is, that's a, a fantastic, um, you know, calling to us, uh, reading for us to be able to reflect upon during the penitential seasons. And of course, during Advent, um, so much also the readings of those preparing for the coming of the Messiah, the prophecies of pointing forward towards the coming of the Lord. Uh, and so those, those, two, those two aspects uh, really pull together, um, especially from the prophets. But of course, there are various other, other readings throughout the year uh, at different times that we'll pull from, uh, from the Old Testament uh, at some point, specifically on some of those days like, like the Ember Days or, uh, or some of the vigils. And these kinds of things where there are multiple readings, uh, like Ember Saturday is usually, you know, I think seven readings, somewhere in that range. Uh, and so you, <laughs> you read a whole bunch. And so at that point, though, you, you'll, you'll often have something like from Genesis, from Kings, from the prophets, from another prophet. right? And so they'll kind of line them all up according to that particular feast. And so uh, that's how the, the readings are, are kind of divided up through the year in that particular manner for, for the first reading. And it's interesting because they're, they're fed, they're, they are read facing the altar. Um, even whenever it's sung mass, even in like in a solemn high mass, whenever you have a priest deacon and subdeacon, the, the subdeacon would, would proclaim the, the epistle and he would take the book, the epistolary, the, the book of the epistles, and he would come out, turn around and kind of be at the corner, uh, the corner of the, uh, the steps of the altar, and he would turn facing, facing the altar to proclaim the word of God. Which is interesting because you're like, well, it's, and because the, you know, a, lot of the, a lot of the thought is, well, like, we're the ones supposed to be hearing it. Why doesn't he turn and orient towards us? You know, it would be, that makes more sense, right? And so our, our, our kind of practical sense um, kind of comes into play and says, well, no, that it should be facing us. 
right? And so there's kind of some confusion there. And so really part of the, part of the reason of that is because uh, just the one, that, that the reading of the epistle, the reading of that, of that first lesson is representative of John the Baptist, right? Uh, and so uh, all through, through the church, uh, early, you know, the, the later part of the early church fathers, um, specifically the ones of Roman, kind of Roman influence, uh, and then the, the Roman church over the centuries, uh, all throughout the middle, medieval period, uh, through the time of Trent and, and past, uh, numerous references of, of saints and doctors speaking about how the epistle is, well, this is John the Baptist, so this makes sense, right? And so they just, they just confirm, you know, like, oh yeah, the, the subdeacon, John, <laughs> It's almost like every subdeacon was named John, right, in the commentaries, because it was so, it was so prominent that, that the first reading was really emphasizing John the Baptist, calling, proclaiming uh, first before the gospel comes, right? And so we have John preaching, calling people to Christ, and then the gospel is proclaimed following. And so often John is, uh, John is the one there. Uh, and we know that, that John always said, I must decrease, he must increase. Uh, and so that's why John turns to face Christ, that it's not, it's not him orienting himself towards the people, but orienting himself towards Christ. So it's not the, it's not the community worshiping uh, as with orientum posture. It's not the community worshiping that's really the center, but, but Christ in the altar. Um, so it's the, the, uh, the reading is read to Christ, facing Christ, uh, calling out to him, preaching, speaking to him, uh, proclaiming, proclaiming this word and, and inviting him to continue to come to us. And so even with that, uh, it's interesting because the rituals, um, we don't see it often enough, unfortunately, only, uh, only once uh, here in recent memory, but, but certainly in other places where they have solemn high, where for the, a priest, a deacon, and a subdeacon, uh, the ritual is different because whenever a subdeacon comes to proclaim the epistle, it's him and one other person, right? So it's just kind of like he just kind of pops out and it's like, all right, just not a big deal, just kind of low-key hanging out, him, they're just right there by the steps. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, reading is, uh, the reading is chanted and then he kind of goes back up without much ceremony uh, and, and receives the blessing um, and, and returns things. So... Um, but we'll see, as with, um, as with the, the gospel, uh, there are a whole variety of ministers that are present there. And so part of, part of what the, the commentators often will speak about is the fact that there's only the one, the one acolyte who goes with the, uh, with the subdeacon to proclaim uh, the epistle is to, is to, to show how few um, first, heard the, first heard the word among the Jews, right? And so as we know, right, and our blessed Lord says, you know, if, if, if you don't receive it, it will be taken from you. The lamp will be taken from you, given to someone else. Um, and that's exactly what we see kind of taking place in the liturgy is that one comes uh, to be with John the Baptist, representing kind of the Jewish people who, who heard the call and actually followed, actually believed. Um, and so there's this, uh, the smaller number uh, that's present there the one uh, in, represented in the one who comes um, to be with John, to follow John, to hear John uh, proclaiming this. And so, of course, the, the faithful are seated uh, typically during the proclamation of the epistle, uh, just like Mary, the uh, sister of Martha, they're seated at the, seated at the feet of Jesus, uh, listening uh, to him and having chosen the better part as our Lord speaks. And so 
uh, and of course at the at the end of it, uh, at the end of the, the proclamation of the gospel, the server responds, Deo gratias, thanks be to God, which is of course in, in gratitude to God because he's, he's spoken to us, right? He's given us these divinely inspired scriptures. He's given us these words to, to convict, to convert, to inspire, to, uh, to do all of these things that, that have an effect upon us in the hearing of them. Um, and so uh, all of these things, but also um, as, uh, as one, uh, one of the commentators pointed out that, that Deo Gratius was also like the secret code to get into church in the early days, whenever the persecutions were underway, um, the porter. So in the early church, the, of course, there were, there were um, three major orders, the priests, deacons, and subdeacons. So they were major orders. And then below them, there were four minor orders. Um, which included uh, the porter, the, the one who took care of the door, right? And so the, um, the one who kept the door was a, an ordained ministry of the church. It was a particular ministry that you were entrusted with, that there was a task that was given to you. There was a, a right of, of kind of sending you to do this particular thing. Uh, and so the porter for the church was the one who had to know who was Christian and who was not. Because if you, if you let in someone who's not Christian, um, then they know everything they shouldn't know uh, and very likely um, will, you will be turned in shortly and some of your friends will now be martyrs uh, or possibly yourself, right? And so you want to you wanna make sure the right people are getting in. Uh, and so it was a, a common thing that the, the secret code was uh, to walk to the door to say Deo gratias. Uh, so that's one of the, um, one of the traditions that, uh, that seems to be maintained there from the Roman tradition, yeah. In the Trinity, right? St. Peter is to Christ King, mm -hmm. and as you're going to the priest's church, there's like seven steps. Is it mm -hmm. porter, elector, exorcist, and what's the next three? Yeah, porter, yeah, porter, lector, no, porter, I think it's porter, exorcist, lector, or acolyte, lector, acolyte, or acto, acolyte, lector, probably lector, acolyte, okay. and then subdeacon, sub deacon, deacon, sub deacon, priest. Okay, so the other day, a friend of mine from Lafayette, she said, well, I was going to have to read this weekend. I said, read? Well, from my understanding, only those who are aspiring to the priesthood can be elector because it's the second one. <laughs> and I said, ask Father why he thinks you're going to the priesthood. Because I even tell my friends who are studying for the deacon, you know, that's, that's a step to it's like even in the New York, you're a deacon. That means your wife dies, you can't get married, and you, you know, you could even aspire into the priesthood. So, how do we get away from this porter, elector, exorcist, uh, acolyte, subdeacon, deacon? These stages, we kind of just erased history. And, and when did this begin? Because I mean, I asked him, and I said, well, you know, this has always been. Trinity, right? But we don't know exactly where the tradition of these steps, like reporter exorcism. Yeah, those are those are from the early church, um, almost apostolic times, yeah. um, and they weren't always simply steps towards priesthood. Okay. I mean, there were a lot of them. It was it was like this is your ministry. This is this okay. is this okay. is your portion of of the gospel. So it came later, later. This is steps. 
yeah, and so yeah, it became a, a yeah it became a normative thing that a priest would kind of proceed through each of them um, to the fullness. But it wasn't it wasn't like Francis of Assisi; he was a deacon. People don't think about that; they don't realize that often. But he was a deacon of the church, um, and so that's how that's how we could go out and preach, <laughs> right? He was one entrusted with the gospel to proclaim the gospel, um, so he was a deacon of the church, and so. Um, yeah, it wasn't always uh, a situation of, of these were only steps towards priesthood, but yeah, and a um, whole different discussion because Pope Francis allowed women to be instituted acolytes and lectors a couple of years ago so they can be instituted in the same manner as I was instituted, which opens a whole fascinating can of worms that I don't want to talk about right now. So we're just going to reroute that conversation because that's a, that's a different topic. So... Back to the gradual. Moving on to the gradual. Uh, <laughs> we're stepping away, because gradual means step. So we're going to step away from that topic and move to another one. Um, so I don't have to step on a soapbox, because I don't want to stand up. I like being able to sit right now. Um, so the so next step, so at the traditional mass, you've, right, you've got the, the epistle, and then typically, uh, often it'll be the gradual and the alleluia, and then the gospel. Uh, sometimes it'll be the gradual and the tract and the gospel. Sometimes it'll be the tract and the gospel. Sometimes it'll be the hallelujah and the gospel. So there's, like a, there's a variety of, of, of different options that are in there. It's always, it's always going to be one of them, uh, the gospel or the, the gradual hallelujah and the tract. So um, one or two of those will always be present. And that actually helps us to understand what's the spirit of the season, like what's actually happening. Because the gradual is kind of like just the middle of your standard, your standard text. The Alleluia is your joyful one. The tract is your penitential one, right? And so when, which one is read helps you to know what season am I in, right? And so you don't even, you wouldn't even have to look up and see the colors. If you look down and see it's only the tract, you know this is a really penitential time, right? Uh, and so, so we'll kind of hit, uh, hit all three of these uh, together. So... Uh, the gradual, uh, as I said, means means step, um, and so like the gradual psalms are a set of psalms that the Jewish people would sing all the steps of the temple, right? So they would that was that's how they came to be called the gradual psalms. Um, the the gradual itself came to be known as as such as by the same Latin term uh, because if you notice the ambo in the church it steps up, right? And so it's the thing, there would be a place where they would go to the church, like the Ambo, or the Ambo actually, um, and they would, they would step up to it so that they could sing and be, and be heard uh, by, the, by the community present there, um, and they would, they would sing a psalm. And so uh, usually it would, be, it would be a full psalm, so it'd be like all of Psalm 1, all of Psalm 2, all of whatever. And if it was all of Psalm 118, it was forever long, because that's the new trend. That's the the new um, the new one of, of uh, Psalm one nineteen and the new the new translations of the scriptures, which is um, was it an, an anagram? Is that the name for it? Whenever basically it's it's a reflection on the law. Um, so I'll I'll take this side side road here. Um, so Psalm one eighteen in the old right and then one nineteen in the new right is a reflection upon the law, uh, and so it's. Eight verses, um, then in the original Hebrew, every letter of which begins with the letter of that alphabet. 
So it's eight verses to start with that begin with A, eight verses that start with B, eight verses that start with C. And so it's eight verses for the entire alphabet. So you would imagine it's very long, right? Because that's eight times 20, 20-ish letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and so um, just a lot of, a lot of verses. Uh, and so whenever you, if you were to sing that one, they presumably not, would not sing that one whole and entire, or they would not sing that uh, on, uh, with great regularity perhaps, uh, because that would be like a half hour, a half hour sit down just to get through that one psalm uh, to be able to, to do the full thing. But with the psalm, they would go and there would be, there would be a, a sort of a refrain, right? So it's, it's, it's intended by its nature to be a response to the lesson that was just read by the subdeacon. So it's the people's response, the people's cry of the heart. That's what the psalms are, right? They're the prayers of God and they're the prayers given by the Lord to his people. They're the prayers that are crying out to God um, for different needs, for different response. And so one would sing the, the full psalm and there would be kind of the, um, often a, a verse and a response and a verse and a response. So kind of like, a, like we have the responsorial psalm in the new mass. It was very much a similar thing. So it would be kind of a refrain that would be tied in there, but they would sing the whole psalm rather than uh, what's usually the case with graduals uh, is they'll sing one verse uh, and then kind of move on. Uh, sometimes, well, I'll get into that in a second. So um, basically, this is um, the gradual, musically speaking, is, 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 uh, is always the most complicated. Uh, so the, the choir, whenever they sing the full, uh, like the full gradual, um, the, full, the full thing, official one by the church, um, it's long and it's lots, of, it's lots of like a single letter has like 18 notes tied to it. Right, and so it, it kind of drags on for a good long time, and those are the Sundays where, if they're singing those, um, part of that is you know it gives you lots of time to prepare the incense and do all kinds of things while you're getting ready for the gospel, uh, or if they're if you're not using incense, that's usually when you see me if after the if after the first reading they start singing and I just go sit down, it's because I know they're doing the long one, and we're going to be there a while, right? So that's just a, a cue to things. So. Mm -hmm. monasteries you'll have very often the monastic a monastic setup will be kind of similar to what we have in the in the sense of you'll have the high altar you have the altar at the in the top level you have the choir but that was considered different when we were younger a monastery versus you know the sanctuary and the lay people so, yeah I mean. and so you would have but you would have a choir you'd have the the community who would be in choir in choir a technical term but also the musicians would be there uh, and then and then the, the faithful would be kind of the third, a third portion there. So not illicit, not ideal. It's, it's, but I mean, it's, it's strange. How did we get from that? Because I mean, we were taught that emphatically. No one in the choirs thought up here. 
Uh, and now we have literally... Because everything has changed, run. Richard. <laughs> everything has changed. This is not a talk on liturgical, on how we got from the Latin Mass to the Novus Ordo. Oh, okay. You are this no is, that, Richard. Yeah. No, I know that. Yeah. Yeah, Everybody went off the rails. Yeah, okay, so they were yeah. off the rails. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We were taught all this and all of a sudden it's under the rug. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so forget, uh, yeah. Forget all those changes. This is just just a Latin mass. Act like the Novus Ordo doesn't exist. Okay. Go to your happy place <laughs> where where we don't have to worry about trying to think of two masses no, that don't necessarily. Question, you missed the question. No. The question wasn't about what you're doing now. Yeah. The question is, was did this happen every ever before? Because you know, I'm just knowing what I grew up. What was taught by my grandparents, my parents, and the priests. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, I know there. Are, I know there are a, a whole number of churches that are still that are built in that monastic style that are not monasteries. The, oh. the U.S. Basilica being one of them. They've got the Baldacchino altar, the high altar, far off in the back, and there's a, a large space in the front where there would be other seats. That's where the organ would be, and so that that would be where the choir would be, presumably, and then the faithful. Yeah, it was the Basilica. Yeah, but you couldn't even see them. Really, I don't know. Okay, well, yeah. I so I mean, there are churches that are that are built in that in that manner. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's not a. I don't know specifically about the. See, I was just because I was taught all this way. That, yeah, well, I mean, people were also taught like if you if you chewed the blessed sacrament, like it was it was it was hurting Jesus, which is not factually true. Like it's more like piety. I mean, there are a lot of things like a piety that they were you, you try to pass on uh, at an age appropriate understanding or these kinds of things. Um, okay. You know, and so. Yeah, that was the, that was the question. Was, yeah. Was this was this what standard throughout the centuries? Probably not. Okay. I mean, standard throughout the centuries is you didn't have a choir because you didn't have people that could sing. Um, you didn't have people that could that were trained to hold the notes, uh, except at like the cathedral or a, a major thing. If you wanted, you wanted some mass, it was the priest and a couple of people that that were off to the side. Uh, so, okay. Um, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. In my mind, I always remember is uh, the big choir and all. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't most. I would say that probably wasn't most places. Um, in that sense, so yeah, but um, but yeah, so the gradual, like I said, the gradual was kind of a um, it was your standard, your standard piece there, standard praying of a psalm, the, the, the response of the people um, to the to the lesson of the day. Uh, following the, the gradual, like I said, would either be the Alleluia or the tract, so the Alleluia. Um, the word is, it's a Hebrew word that has a whole variety of meanings. And you look at any church, each church father, and every one of them says it means something different. Uh, so <laughs> there's not really, uh, there's not a single translation that any of them say like, oh, it's just this. Uh, because each of them, again, different popes, different, different saints, of the early church, fathers of the, fathers of the church, each said it meant something different. But what they all indicate is that it is, is a joyful psalm of praise, right? So... That's what we just stick with. And so um, they said, and so we don't translate it. We just keep it in the Hebrew. And we all just say, Alleluia, period. And all the meanings that it has, we can still keep and hold on to in that one particular phrase. 
And so, uh, again, this one, this one kind of like, kind of like with the, the gradual, the Alleluia, and the full form, the, when it's sung, it's, it, it can be very long. One A can be 18 notes, and it squiggles all over the place, um, rather than just being a, a quick and, and, you know, precise thing. It drags out for a good long while. Uh, and this, of course, is um, Father Jackson mentioned uh, one, of his, uh, one of his quotes that I highlighted the first time that I read the book with exclamation points next to it, which usually means for me, like, hey, go back and read this again, uh, was, was how beautiful the Alleluia, when, when the, the ahs of the Alleluia are drawn out um, in so many notes, and it's like a full line and a half just for the A. Um, and the beauty of that is just like, because like how much, like the joy, the joy of entering into heaven is like the first 20 million years will just be like us trying to choke out the first syllable of praise of the richness of what we behold. And it's like, just like, we will be so overcome that it'll just, it'll have to be stretched out because it'll just be so much for us, uh, beholding, beholding heaven, beholding God. So I thought that was a really neat kind of tied, uh, like whenever the Alleluia just kind of drags on, and you're like, why do they just keep going? Ah, 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 ah. Like, what are we doing here? Like, you can shorten this thing up and get it rolling, right? Um, but no, it's to to be able to to know that that the drawing out. Uh, that lengthening of those of those notes and, and that joyful tone is to be able to to lift up our hearts uh, to be able to contemplate heavenly things. So the next piece would be then the tract. Um, and so the Alleluia or the tract. You never have an Alleluia and a tract together, uh, to my knowledge. I don't know when that would possibly happen if it's both joyful and penitential. Um, and so that would be. Uh, but the the tract is um, is. Basically, it means stretched or drawn out. Uh, and so this one, uh, like the Alleluia, is stretched and drawn out in a joyful tone. The tract is stretched and drawn out in a very somber tone. And so whereas Alleluia lifts you up, the tract kind of pulls you down. Right? And so that's, that's why it's used during penitential seasons. And that's why it would be uh, oftentimes in a minor key rather than a major key uh, to, to kind of help you realize the, the seriousness of the cry, and that's why you have a lot of the, the cries that are the exalties, like Lord, <laughs> Lord, hear us! We're crying out to you. The you know the the out of the depths, you know, out of the out of the depths, I cry to you. And those those psalms of 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 kind of really begging the Lord, having mercy on us. I'm sinking. I'm dying here. <laughs> Help me, Lord! Right? All those all those deprecatory psalms um, that that really show a weight uh, a weight upon the heart of David or the psalmist. Um, that we cling to as well, uh, and we see those especially in the in the tract uh, again during those more penitential times, penitential seasons. So, give some. Um, so, those three: the gradual Alleluia and the tract would be would be between situated between the epistle and the gospel, um, but occasionally uh, on a few on a few times in the year we'll also have the sequence. Uh, so the sequence. Uh, comes from the the Latin word sequencia, which just means like continuation. Um, so it's really just a, a continuation. Like we're just gonna we're gonna keep doing some things before we get to the gospel, 
right? And so uh, what this one is, is it's, uh, the sequence is, a hymn, is a, a hymn or a poem composed for a particular feast. And uh, in the traditional rite, presently, there are only five of them. Uh, and so, uh, so what is it? For, uh, for Holy Thursday, Easter Sunday, Pentecost, uh, Our Lady of Sorrows, the Sabbath Mater, and Funeral Masses, the Dies Irae. And so only those five times would, uh, would a sequence be uh, sung in the traditional liturgy in its, in its present form. But uh, historically, there were numerous sequences. I mean, uh, if you look in some of the, some of the missiles uh, prior to the Council of Trent, or you can get in some of these things musically, that there are um, just countless countless sequences where they're like, I really like St. Scholastica, so we're going to make a sequence for St. Scholastica. We would do that at the seminary. We sang, we had a sequence of St. Scholastica because the, the, uh, the Scola Master at, uh, at our seminary in New Orleans had been a Benedictine monk and loved St. Scholastica. So on St. Scholastica's day, we would sing the sequence to St. Scholastica during the offertory because we couldn't insert it liturgically. Um, they, were, they were opposed to that idea, but we would do it as the offertory. And it's just a beautiful hymn, a beautiful kind of poetic, um, poetic sign to St. Scholastica honoring her on that feast. Uh, and so the, it was a normal thing that you would have, the, you know, these monks would compose hymns and psalms uh, or songs, uh, poems, uh, to these saints or for these particular, uh, particular uh, feast of our Lord or Our Lady in this. And so that's what we see um, in the church. We still have, again, a few of those left actually in the liturgy, but certainly many others that one can find by scouring the internet and looking uh, to be able to, to see in some of the older missiles uh, or just some of the music that's out there the, of the sequence of Saint so-and-so. Uh, those things still exist out in the world. Uh, in that regard. So, continuing on, another sequencia is that of the gospel, right? And so it usually begins sequencia sancti evangelii, so a, a continuation of the reading of the Holy Gospel. And so um, this one is where, where there's movement. So the previous, all the previous readings um, have been on the epistle side of the altar. So the two sides of the altar, in case I haven't pointed that out, there's the epistle side is the right side. The gospel side is the left side because on the epistle side, you, you read the epistle on the right side and the gospel on the left side. Uh, again, sometimes we as Romans are not super creative in the naming of things. Uh, so we just, we're very, very clear about the description. Where's it's the epistle side? Because that's where we read the epistle of the gospel because we read the gospel. So there's a transition, of course, between them. So the priest goes to the altar uh, and he prays a couple of preparatory prayers uh, and then proceeds to the, the gospel side, the left side of the altar. And so um, commentators speak to this of, of, of our blessed Lord, how you know, if, if the, the first reading uh, is symbolic of John the Baptist, you know, of, of the one proclaiming the forerunner, the one of speaking of the things before the coming of the Lord to prepare the way for the Lord, the Lord then, then the priest coming to the middle is symbolic of our Lord's 40 days out in the desert. Uh, so the 40 days where he went to go fast and to pray uh, before he was sent out on, on mission to proclaim the gospel. Uh, so we know that first he was baptized, he went in the desert 40 days, fasted and prayed, and then he goes off and begins actually preaching and teaching. Uh, and so the, the fact that the priest goes in the middle 
and stops to pray, uh, many, uh, again, kind of looking at this, not just from a, a practical perspective, but from a spiritual one of like, how can we pray with the things that are happening? Because we can pray with the movements of the mass, right? Uh, so as to, to think about this and, and to be able to see the priest is, is to be able to, to remember like our Lord had to be prepared uh, before he was able to go out in the same manner that we have to be prepared, all of us, uh, before we go out, and so we're restrained by the Lord, and then we're sent, right? So all these kind of things that we can tie together in our own mind. So the priest goes, and, and he prays, prays the blessing of the Lord, uh, prays a couple of prayers, the first of which is, is the prayer to Isaiah, is the prayer um, invoking, like, of, of how Saint, uh, well, he's a saint, uh, Isaiah, the prophet, how, um, you know, he, 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 was, he was being called by the Lord, but he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so the angel went to the altar and took a coal, and set it to his lips, and he says, you know, by this, <laughs> like, your lips are clean. You've been purged from your sin. Now, go preach, you know. Uh, and so it's a similar thing. So the priest invokes, invokes that mystery of, of the lips being purified uh, by the burning coal to be able to, to purify oneself, but also invoking that same sense of, of trying to have that, that purity of mind and proclaiming the gospel because, um, again, I always love... Uh, sometimes the commentators they show they show their own weaknesses in their writing, um, and one of them was speaking about the fact that uh, that um, you know it's important to pray this prayer and to mean this prayer of, of having this purity to proclaim the holy gospel to proclaim it you know worthily and well as the prayer will say competently, um, because it's easy to to get up there and to realize the um, <laughs> the thoroughfare with the incense is standing in the wrong place. Uh, that the MC pointed to the wrong spot on the page, that, you know, that, that such and such is happening behind you, or you know that the homily, you're trying to make sure that you got some, some notes for the homily in your head. Uh, you're, you're worried about the temperature in the church, or these kinds of things, and how easy it is, uh, and, you know, as one is about to proclaim the Holy Gospel, um, which is, is you know, one of the highest things in the sacred liturgy, it's easy to have one's mind in 10,000 places. And so uh, to be able to pray for that purity of the lips, to proclaim it well, to purity of the mind, to be able to, to be um, singularly focused, uh, singularly focused on that mystery that's, um, that's to be proclaimed. And so, uh, so that's Christ uh, in the center, the priest praying in the center is Christ in his 40, 40 days in the desert, a little mini Lent that happens right there as the priest bows down uh, under the weight of under the weight of of, uh, of the fasting and penance that is required to be able um, an invitation of our Lord to go out and to preach, and then he proceeds to the gospel side to proclaim. But he's got to have a book over there, uh, and so the missal is moved from the epistle side by the server and brought over uh, at low mass, brought down genuflect in the center, and then go back up to the high steps, uh, or in a solemn high mass with a priest deacon subdeacon. Uh, in a solemn high, the, uh, the gospel would be placed on the, on the epistle side of the altar. The deacon would receive a blessing from the priest, and he would take the book and then proceed down and then go out, typically outside of the rails, uh, like in the area where everyone lines up for communion between the area, the first pew and the, and the communion rail. That area um, would be the place where the proclamation of the gospel would happen here. Uh, it could happen in the sanctuary, but ideally it would be outside the sanctuary right there in front of the rail. And so uh, what that would, kind of what that symbolically shows is, is several things. Uh, one, 
is that, um, that, that it's a movement towards from John the Baptist now to Christ the priest, right? So it's Christ proclaiming, uh, Christ proclaiming the gospel. So he doesn't orient himself towards himself in the altar. He doesn't face east. He actually faces north. Uh, so that's why if, if at low mass, uh, the, the missile and the stand on the epistle side is straight, is, is, is parallel to the front of the altar. Uh, on the gospel side, it's placed at an angle. So the priest would be, because he can't face entirely north because there's not an altar there. Uh, there would have to be a, an extra corner <laughs> that juts out. Uh, but he angles it so he can orient himself in the northern direction to proclaim the gospel. Uh, because, of course, uh, for us in the, in the northern hemisphere, what's to the north? Um, cold places. Uh, so we, you know... Uh, so those places that are that are chilled by the evil one, we want the Holy Spirit of fire to come and to warm the, to warm us and to warm those places. Um, but also, particularly for Rome and for the Jewish people, um, for the people in, in the early church and in the Greek lands and, and the Holy Land and all of this, what was to the north were pagans. Uh, and so those who haven't heard the gospel, so we're going to turn towards them and proclaim it. Uh, and so the, the liturgy has that a reorientation that turns towards the north. At that point, the fact that the the missile is moved from one side to the other is not. Uh, it's partly a practical thing because again, you've got to have something to read from. But also symbolically, it's it's to to remember that uh, again, like in, like the scriptures tell us that that um, with the Jewish people, you know, woe to you if you if you don't if you don't do the task, your lamp will be taken from you and given to someone else. And so the moving of, of the missile from the epistle side to the gospel side is a symbolic reality that, that it went from the Jews only to the Jews, then to the Gentile nations. So that the Gentiles were then called in to be the primary, the primary actors, so to speak, in the proclamation of the gospel. Unless we get pigheaded about ourselves and think that we are like, oh, well, we got it all now. We're good. Remember that Jesus can take our lamp from us, too. If we, don't, if we don't do that ourselves, if we don't stand up, if we don't preach the gospel, if we don't live the faith, if we don't do the things that Christ has called us to do by virtue of the proclamation of the gospel, our Lord can say, yeah, so your lamp's gone. Case in point, parishes clustering, parishes closing, diocese merging, diocese being suppressed. The fact that there, that there are places in the world where, like, you know, some of the, some of the, the places where they're writing to the early church— they don't exist anymore, and yet there are letters written to them in the Bible. It's because their lamp was taken from them, right? Because they didn't continue to preach the gospel. At some point, it faded, and they became lukewarm, and it was taken. And so that's a good uh, invitation for us to, every time we see the, the, the book move from one side to the other, to go, okay, I don't want that to happen to me. So let's be attentive to what's about to happen next, right? So it's a good kind of a visual cue and a spiritual cue for us to remember to be really attentive to what the gospel says and to living it um, in the course of our life. Got a question? Yeah. I didn't get it. Um, I've been to a lot of high song masses. I've never seen that. They can think of them coming out of the sanctuary. They come mm -hmm. down and then they go over. So mm -hmm. did they actually read it in, right there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so at a solemn high, they would come down and either in the sanctuary or outside the sanctuary. Again, oftentimes, the, the tradition seems to prefer outside the sanctuary, uh, symbolically at least, um, because 
um, as I mentioned, like with the epistle, when the epistle will be read by the subdeacon, and it was the subdeacon with one, one acolyte because so few followed John, right? Uh, whenever they set up and they do the procession for the gospel, there are six. Uh, and there's candles, there's incense, there's the deacon holds the book, or the subdeacon holds the book, the deacon, the deacon proclaims the gospel, and they're all oriented in that same direction. And again, the movement would often be um, to be able to go out to, uh, out, out, um, to proclaim the gospel. So it would be symbolically like going out to all the world. So you're leaving the simple holy place to be able to go Well, we're having another nice song mess at the end of March, so I'm going to keep my eye on Different places do different things. <laughs> see, see, see what they do, because I never paid attention to that. Yeah. When we did it here, right. I was outside the sanctuary. Okay. Um, Must have been up north at that time when you did that. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, different places may do different things. Sometimes the orientation of the church doesn't permit, like, you, you don't have enough space to do it there, so you do it here. And so sometimes things are just. No, I got a lot of space, we just have to go through. So. Um, but yeah, so that's. Um, that's the piece there, and so, um, and of course, the you know the faithful stand uh, as a as a visible sign of being ready and willing to put the put the gospel into action. Be not doers only, but be be not hearers only, but doers of the word. Uh, and so, it's that that call to um, again to receive the gospel and do something about it, not just let it pass and just think that things are well lest our land be taken from us as, uh, as from the Jews. So after the gospel, the priest goes to the center and usually will remove his manipole, place it on the, um, on the missile and missile stand, or place it on the altar, and then we'll go preach. And there are uh, several different options there. Um, one can give a, a homily, which would be we often use the terms kind of interchangeably, but theoretically they have technical, technical points. So a homily would be, would be preaching on the readings, uh, on the readings of the day, the, the propers of the mass. So whatever you, you, know, whatever you just heard, we're gonna talk about that. So that would be a homily theoretically. Uh, so a sermon would be something where um, you basically don't talk about the readings, but you have a topic. So that's why uh, the rosary series, I'm calling it a rosary sermon series because it's a sermon and not a homily. Um, and so, because most of the most of the things they don't exactly tie in with the readings that we're listening to, um, so it's more of a topic, a topical thing on some dogmatic or, or devotional thing. And the other option is a fervorino, uh, which is basically a little, a little, a little go get them uh, invitation. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a little pep talk. Uh, so fervorino, right? Fervor, right? Some fire. Uh, so it's when you get up and you just uh, talk about a particular virtue or the saint of the day for half a second and just kind of a little, just a little, a little snack uh, rather than a full exposition of th- something. So it's just a little, you know, this is what our Lord said and here's how we can do it. So let's go do it um, type of thing and, and um, off you go. So uh, all of those are, uh, are options there or you can do like I did today and just not say anything. Um, because I knew I was going to be late because I was late to getting the confessions and late starting Mass because I wanted to hear all the confessions. And I said, you know, God's Word is good enough. I don't need to hear Father Brent's random reflections on it, at least not every day. 
Um, and so, uh, so that's when we hop to uh, opt to that fourth option that's not mentioned, uh, which is no sermon. So uh, it's not, a, not an option on Sunday. A sermon has to be given on Sundays, but, uh, but weekdays it is, it is optional there. So, and part of the reason the priest takes off his maniple is, is kind of a, a visible sign of, of like hitting the pause button. Because they're like, all right, we're taking a break from, from the, the rites of the Mass. We're gonna we're gonna set that aside for free sit and you know we're gonna interrupt this broadcast for a, for a special message. Uh, have the message and then we go back and put it on and then on Sundays, credo and unum deum or um, weekdays if there's if there's not a credo, um, then simply the dominus fobiscum and uh, the antiphon for the offertory. So, but uh, so yeah, so the priest comes back, puts his mantle black on, and thus it's kind of like hitting the play button, you know. Resume. We now resume your previously whatever broadcast that we interrupted, uh, and then uh, again for most feasts, uh, for Sundays and, and various feasts of the year, the creed would be recited uh, or sung, and one again can have three. Uh, typically, there are three reasons. One of three reasons why the creed would be said for a particular a particular mass, um, either because uh, because it's a feast with a historic or dogmatic tie to the content of the creed. Uh, so if there's, if there's, you know, like on the, on feast of the, of the incarnation of our Lord, the feast of the annunciation where God took on flesh. So some of these things that are contained in the creed itself, uh, some of those mysteries, although many of them fall on, on Sundays, the ones that fall during the weekdays and things, they often will have a creed uh, because the mystery we're celebrating is what we profess, right? Uh, and so for, for that, so it's either some historic or dogmatic connection to the creed that particular day, because it's the feast of one of the apostles, uh, which of course they're the first teachers, they're the ones from whom the faith is given to us. And so we, we emphasize that by praying the creed, professing our faith on those feasts. Or lastly, simply to enhance the splendor or importance of a feast, such as Sundays, right? So every Sunday we proclaim the creed, you know, we, we do the creed, uh, or if a um, if the Holy Father uh, announces a, a particular a particular feast and he wants to give it a certain rank, part of that means we're going to pray the creed on these days. And when you hear the creed at a weekday mass, it means this is a really special feast, at least in the mind, if not in the in the the practice. Even if it's not a sung a sung mass, a high mass, uh, it's still of great importance in some manner to our faith. So that's it's kind of you can you can hear those those scales where the church in quiet ways tells us uh, how important certain things are. Uh, so the Sunday feast always being said with a creed means Sunday is of a, a high order and it's the Lord's day. And there's other days, whether because they're apostles um, or various other feasts, emphasize that as well. And so that is. Uh, the conclusion of reflections today and kind of going through some of the symbolism and things. Uh, and so we'll pick up next time with the offertory. Um, so we'll do just the offertory. Uh, I think that's on March 21st, three weeks. I think it's the third, the third Tuesday of the month. Um, yeah, but we'll do the, um, we'll do just the offertory um, because I want to be able to give the, the Eucharistic prayer its own, its own thing because it's um, 
it's the center of it all. It's where the mm-hmm. it's where the Lord literally becomes present to us um, on the altar. And so, uh, so we'll start off with the uh, get into the offertory next time and reflect on on the uh, the gestures, the words um, that are that are so richly contained uh, in that portion. So, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. World without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.